from Pascal to writing image processing code, if there is one word you absolutely cannot use to describe Ben Sandowski's career, it would be uneventful. He was one of the first mobile engineers at Twitter, had a stint helping build Periscope, and ultimately ventured into unexplored territory to finish a photo app he always wanted that later became Halide. In this episode, I sit down with Ben to get a better understanding of the decisions he made in his career and what were the critical turning points that made him start his own studio, Lux. Enjoy the 29th episode of The Work Item. Ben Sandowski, welcome to The Work Item. Hey, happy to be here. It's so exciting to be uh, here with you because you are uh, one of the co-founders uh, of uh, Lux, which is the studio that builds Halide, and I am a big fan of Halide. Before I start kind of talking about just the app and all the project, I want to learn more about you. You had a pretty remarkable career that we're going to get into uh, into this show. And I want to learn more about what started it all. Where did it all get started? I think a lot of people, depending on who you ask, they'll start at a different point as to their origin. So uh, if you want to go way, way back, uh, you could start when I was eight years old and I was lucky enough to be exposed to programming. In my elementary school, they had uh, Apple IIs uh, in a computer lab and they taught us Logo, which is a little turtle that draws on screen. You know, throughout growing up, was sent to a computer camp uh, in Western Massachusetts for a summer and we learned Pascal. And then, you know, in junior high and high school, I was playing around programming there before I got into uh, university and uh, double majored in computer science and humanities with a concentration in theater. And after I graduated, going through school, I didn't really know what I wanted to do in programming or even if I really enjoyed it. <laughs> and uh, you know, I felt like I could do maybe graphics programming, work in visual effects or do computer animation. And you know, I didn't even have really any internships or anything lined up to bring me down that path. <laughs> so I got out of school, I was like, okay, what do I do now? Uh, I figured maybe, uh, well, one path to get there would be maybe you, if you're in LA, there's a lot of game development, there's a lot of film visual effects. And uh, so I figured, you know, I'd get a job down there and this web development thing, you know, web 2.0 was just about to kick off and it was clear that web was, you know, in demand. And so I started out doing web development. And as I was doing more exploration of what it takes to get into visual effects, it's like, wow, this field is brutal. Um, this is also around the time in video games, they had this famous blog post from EA Spouse that talked about crunch in the industry uh, and it talked about like you do 12 hour days for six months and the pay wasn't really good. And you know, this web thing, as far as effort <laughs> to rewards, like uh, web development, uh, certainly a good way to kick off our career. And it allowed me to scale uh, or, or optimize income for a while. Uh, and, you know, I, I could max out that stat uh, and uh, learn general career tricks around becoming uh, a better developer, even though it was targeting web stuff. And so, yeah, I, uh, I, I went through a few jobs while I was in L.A. there. And, you know, I eventually did optimize, like, as far as, like, you reach senior and pretty much all the salaries are roughly the same. And I just was feeling unfulfilled with what I was working on. And it's hard to complain, right? I mean, like, if you look at someone who's in a service industry, like, you know, don't cry, don't shed any tears for me. They're like, hey, you know what you're working on. But at the same time, it's like, yeah, but at a certain point, you know, 
if everything's paying roughly the same, what do you really want to be spending your time on? And so I just sort of woke up one day and it's like, okay, what if, what if the reason I'm not really happy with what I'm doing has to do with the product uh, versus doing web development or something else? And so, you know, I made a list of products that I use and enjoy using and uh, would love to work on. And, uh, you know, I applied to a bunch of tech companies up in the Bay Area and eventually landed in my uh, job in Twitter. Uh, at the time, it was just hot up and coming. Like, it was like, you know, I enjoy it. And uh, this was, you know, 2009. So they hadn't reached nearly the critical mass, although they did have traction. So it's like, it wasn't totally like a company no one had heard of. And so I took the risk and I ended up taking uh, a salary cut to work there. And I moved up to the Bay Area. And it was interesting because when I joined, you could still fit the whole company at one very large lunch table. So I think there were like 30 engineers in the company and, you know, they still had trust and safety, a legal team, um, you know, uh, support and everything, but it was still startup-y compared to when I left uh, in 2014, (laughs) which had uh, literally thousands of employees, they had IPO'd. And so it was very interesting seeing a company grow from uh, that scale to big corporation starting to approach the Facebook kind of scale things. And um, yeah, that led to sort of my next chapters in life, which we can talk about. What did you use for Pascal coding? Because this is something that I started as well when I was in, I want to say middle school. And I remember it was such a pain to work with it compared to the modern IDE. So I'm really curious, what was the tool of choice? So these are, uh, I don't remember what model of Macintosh they had at this computer camp, but it was a black and white Macintosh on whatever IDE uh, they had. Nothing compared to today's IDEs, but <laughs> they were there. I think they would do type checking at least. Um, what's funny is that I was actually talking to some folks. I did a talk a year and a half ago uh, in Belarus, and uh, I was talking to some of the developers there. And uh, I was like, oh, so what's your CS? Like, do, do they teach programming in elementary school? Like when I was, you know, really young, and they're like, oh, well, we, we learned this language that no one really has heard of and it's never used anywhere. It's called Pascal. I'm like, oh, wow, you're the second person I've known who knows Pascal. <laughs> yeah, it's not super well known. And apparently some people were like, man, this is a better language to teach people than C as an early language. Uh, you know, certainly we didn't have any of the kind of like the Rubies. I guess Ruby was out then, but it was still like some really obscure, even more obscure than Pascal. But yeah. As somebody that grew up in Eastern Europe, that is very much relatable because really? yes. Okay. Uh, yeah. I, I, I grew up in Moldova, which is this tiny little country uh, in Eastern Europe. Pascal was the only language that we would learn in school. Like every single book, article, whatever you find, college, middle school, high school, Everything is Pascal. Okay. So it's like the club mate of programming languages where if you talk to someone from Europe, they're all on it like club mate's the best soda. Yeah. I don't know if you're a fan of Pascal. I have no complaints about it. I I just remember there was very, very painful. And then I think the evolution of that was Delphi, which was a little bit better. And it was kind of like the visual basic. You can draw GUIs and it was a little bit more user-friendly, if you will. But Pascal gave me a lot of nightmares. (laughs) I guess that's true of everyone's first language is that you always, you're going to hate the first language I've hated. Well, I still hate Java, but you, 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 you learn the language, but you're also learning how to code and you're inflicting a bunch of your own pain <laughs> and you blame the language because you don't want to realize I have no idea what I'm doing, but I still hate Java. Well, and when I went uh, to college in the United States, they had an intro to programming course. And the language that they chose for that was C. And even at the time I was thinking like, 
are you serious? Like you're you're gonna start people with C? Like this is the one language that it'll just anyone starting with it will probably just say like, nah, no, 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 I don't want to do this anymore. <laughs> it's like definitely like juggling exacto knives. Uh, right. Possibly now it's better, but in my university they had uh, you could choose at the time, and I think that was new. You could choose between Java or C. And Java was object orient the object oriented course. They didn't call it the Java course. And I um, I remember asking uh, the professor. I showed up early to class one time, and I was like, "Yeah, you know, I, I would be interested in doing game programming, but I hear C is really the thing to do that." And the professor's like, "Well, we think that Java is going to be very popular and used everywhere, so we'd like to prepare students, you know." And I guess there was a period where Java was the hotness, and then Android came back and it became big again. But yeah, in a way. For my goals, I probably should have done C. You know, at least it teaches you the lower level stuff. But, you know, I guess college isn't necessarily about teaching you the hot languages, right? There's, I guess, a lot of people. The difficult thing about universities and also <laughs> the reason it's more than just sort of vocational training, right? But anyway, we're getting into all off topic there. I mean, th these are good thoughts. And like I said, to me, you know, Java runs in your fridge. Why wouldn't you learn Java? So, <laughs> um, yeah, it is. It, it's the most close thing to a universal language, I guess. I, I don't know. That's true. But I, I do have a question, something that you called out earlier that you also kind of went down the road of humanities. And this is something that we hear a lot nowadays when folks talk about the fact that, you know, a lot of the ethical issues that come up with engineering is because engineers just do not have that background in humanity, so they don't necessarily think through a lot of these problems. How do you think the humanities aspect helped shape what you're doing today or your career, your thought process, anything like that? And you have to walk a line here where I think a lot of people... I would say that don't confuse that like having an understanding of the humanities and appreciation of it with like, don't be a dilettante where you're like, yeah, I took a, I took an English class and I'm approaching code as if it were writing, like go away, <laughs> like go, go spend some time with real writers and understand what it actually is. And in many ways of the successful writers, successful creatives I've known who've made careers out of it, they treat it every much as an engineering skill set as what we do. There's a very regimented approach as opposed to you sit there, writer's block all day. You know, how can I come up with this thing? No, it's, it's, it's a job like anything else, right? But I think that having a killer combination as an engineer is uh, having the ability to articulate and communicate. Uh, uh, having that on top of strong engineering skill sets will unlock so many doors because you know, some people can overweight their stats. Like if you're in an RPG, like, yeah, you're an incredible low level, you know, assembly and everything. But if you can't, if you can't sell your idea or have other people understand what you're doing uh, or write amazing documentation, or, you know, even now uh, as I'm working on selling our own products and, and product management, um, so much has been helpful, like writing, uh, so, uh, making people excited about our products in our in our blog posts. Sometimes we'll write a blog post before we actually finish the product, where it's like in the early ideation phase, and we'll. It's something I guess Amazon is known to do. They probably don't. It's probably just hype they do to sell people on joining Amazon. But there's a story that like Amazon will write the press release before the product. As we're figuring out what we're building, it is helpful to be like, okay, what are we, why should people be excited? What is the selling point? Why do you need to download it right now? And being able to write about it is a, a super useful skill set there and getting people excited and passionate about your products. 
So yeah, I'd say that, you know, there's a sweet spot if you already have a background in the humanities and building up engineering will help. But I wouldn't say, I think as far as diminished returns, getting a degree in English is not going to help you as much as a degree in CS or, or other engineering skills like mathematics, physics, or anything that's like um, uh, engineering oriented, but certainly flushing out if you, and this is what's nice of uh, about a U.S. education. I've heard that uh, in Europe, the university system is a little more vocational where they don't focus, like if you go for a skill set, you might know more, you'll know more about this than me. But I, you know, I've heard that they don't focus as much on the humanities. But what is one of the nice things is that like uh, when I got my CS degree, we, you had to have uh, English or, or humanities requirements and they did include an ethics class. Again, it's one of those things like just because you take the class doesn't mean, you know, <laughs> ethics. And a lot of people are going to use that as an example of like all these programmers who lack ethics, right? But it was insightful to have one unit where we learned about these, you know, tragic situations of like, um, I forget the name of the machine, but as an example, um, there's this machine that was uh, the uh, issues radiation treatment for um, oh, yeah. therapy or whatever. Direct 25, I think it was. There you go. And everyone should read about that if they haven't, but it was basically engineered in a way where there weren't checks, hardware-based safety checks to prevent overdosing people with radiation. Um, uh, and basically there were people who were given lethal doses due to a software bug combined with poor usability. And um, you know, fortunately, I'm so happy I just work on camera apps. It's terrible when, when, when my app crashes and you lose a photo. And I, I do feel really guilty when I look at like the tiny, 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 tiny number of crashes, like, ah, did I ruin someone's day? But no one died as a result of it. But I think now as we're looking at like social networks and so many secondary ways that you can genuinely harm people uh, at scale in such small ways that you don't understand the side effects, you know, I'd say having an understanding of ethics is just important. And it's probably the greatest argument for having someone to being barred as a lawyer, <laughs> you have to take an ethics exam. If you're going to talk about having required exams for what would, it, would be acquired of an engineer, I honestly don't care if you can come up with a linked list, but understanding the ramifications of what you're doing and its impact on society, like that, that that's something I'd be a, a fan of instituting. Right. And even basic skills like writing and being able to convey your ideas clearly is so, so important, you know, you, and especially in engineering roles where you're collaborating with design, PM, whoever else, and especially at bigger companies, I know that it's probably, I don't know how big of a problem it is in smaller studios, but in bigger companies, when you work with tens of different people, and even in your case, your blog posts are phenomenal in that they're so detailed and crisp that it's clear that you put a lot of effort into picking the right words and making sure that it all reads cohesively and it's not just thrown together over the wall and say, here's a product, go download the app, whatever. Thanks. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's hard sometimes to justify why are we writing the blog post? Like, we should finish the product first. Um, but it's kind of like that thing, like, and it's just going and revisiting it over and over and over again. So like in the case of our big Mark II launch, which was 18 months long, Early on in the process, we started drafting out the post as, in a way, it was almost like having a project board, like where this is effectively the living document of what we're building. Uh, and I can't, I got, I cannot count how many times we returned to it when I realized, God, that feature's not going anywhere. And it was really helpful because I think that maybe four months before the release, there was a feature that wasn't coming together. And it was like, or we had the blog post and I was just reading it over. I'm like, would I be excited if I were an outsider reading this? 
And it really helped show us like, no, we can't punt this feature to, you know, 2.3. We need to get this as part of the launch because it completes the story that we're going to be, you know, uh, working uh, as far as PR and selling people on. And it's sort of like, you can tell if, you, if you've ever seen a movie where clearly they did some reshoots at the end, like hey, something's missing here. Well, uh, the Justice League movie, if you've seen, not the Snyder cuts that good, but like versus the original version, like something's missing. And this is the first cut that came out. And it's the same thing if you, you if you just look at some products that companies will release. Sometimes it's interesting to think about the internal debates that PMs had before this thing was ultimately launched. Like uh, whatever the the Samsung folding phone that if you uh, if you peel away the sticker, it destroys the phone. Like imagine I would hope the debates that went into that and uh, you know things like that. So yeah, it's it's helpful and uh, I like to think that somebody tested at least some rudimentary scenarios like that and it's not just kind of like all right we built it ship it (laughs) once you start production you start realizing that if you bend the screen at a specific angle it cracks like how many users will not bend the screen that way (laughs) it's scary it's kind of well again it's almost like and we're going back to ethics (laughs) this is not a best analogy when we're talking about stupid screens but like if you look at the uh, challenger disaster and this was another thing that we, I don't know if it was the ethics class we studied. I think it was a class on rhetorics, part of the humanities um, uh, coverage. And they talked about like the, the memos that went back and forth between managers and the engineers who were calling out that there is a specific issue with the O-rings in the shuttle. And there's a probability that these could run into problems. And, you know, I think in a large company, certainly at a much less consequential scale, you can see like the back and forth between, I'm sure there was product managers like, okay, really how many people are going to do that? We need to hit it by a day. Well, we can patch it. Or they did the math on how much it would cost to recall it later. Right. And it's really helpful to know, like, and identify in your own company, <laughs> like, are we falling into these logical fallacies? Are we all being complacent and having the bystander effect that leads to these problems uh, that lead to, you know, jokes of the industry. Right. Yeah, a lot, lot to think about there. But I want to take a step back and talk about your career because I know that there's a lot of topics that we can discuss and I'm, I'm still curious about your career at Twitter. You, you worked there for some time and you were the first hire on the mobile team. What was that like? Because that seems like that fundamental founding moment where this you're, you're venturing into something completely new. Yeah, uh, and I'd say that... Uh... My greatest advantage, especially early in my career, is that I had no idea the actual risk I was taking. So I'd be like, yeah, sure, whatever. Uh, a very Chauncey Gardner approach to life. <laughs> go, go watch the everything I learned about careers I learned from the movie Being There, uh, where you, know, you say it's a lot of risk, but honestly, what was it, what is the worst possible thing that could happen if you, for me, in that situation, if I joined a startup and it went nowhere? Uh, at the time, I had been uh, working professionally five years, so I had a nest egg that, like, if I were out of work, I wouldn't be homeless. Would I? Would it be a mark on my career? Like, it, <laughs> again, it's not like a Theranos situation. If we look back, like, would it, would it make it more difficult? If anything, it would make it easier for me to find my next gig. And uh, in in a tech hub like Silicon Valley, you can throw a rock and get three job offers if you know, you know, if your skills are up to date and you. We'll just say spit a certain type of profile. Uh, I'm not the qualified person to complain about that, but we'll, we'll leave that there. It's very easy for an engineer in Silicon Valley when you reach a certain level a few years out to get a new job. And 
even then the consequences of even, um, and this is what I talked to with someone who is in LA who <laughs> they, they were explaining at their company, the best thing about being in LA is that there's so fewer tech jobs down there because when they hook someone, uh, when they get someone in their company, if they want to, in, in Silicon Valley, you can just spend a year at one company, hop to the next one, hop to the next one. There's no consequences. Uh, in LA though, it's very fewer options to choose from. I didn't like that person. That's not a good way to look at employees. But yeah, so we say it's risky, but you know, I, I don't think it was that risky. I guess there's opportunity cost and the fact, uh, and this is a good thing to think about is like you take a, a job at a Google, which the stock is as good as cash and compare that to a startup, which is most of your compensation uh, at a Google is gonna be equity. And in a startup, if you get the same equity, 99.9% .9 of that equity is not worth the paper that it's printed on, right? And um, we can talk about later, like when I left uh, uh, Twitter, I was trying to figure out what to do next. There were opportunities to join the next big thing. Uh, they were at a stage earlier than Twitter. And when I joined Twitter, I would say it was after it had reached like certain critical mass and it was getting traction. It was before it was clearly on the scale to Facebook. Whereas if you're doing early stage, seed stage companies, like honestly, you better be getting something out of it more than hopefully that lotto ticket. Because I can just say statistically, almost certainly, and yeah, congratulations, you, you won the lottery, but you're not going to make any money off the equity. Now you could get, you know, incredible experience. You could also get horrible trauma that you'll spend years in therapy trying to unpack in the case of like a Theranos. <laughs> but you, hopefully you have something beyond that like dangling carrot around money. Yeah, so I'd say it was risky, but I was also at an age where I didn't have, uh, uh, and I, I still don't have kids, but you know, and I didn't have any dependencies, you know, heaven forbid if I had like elderly parents who were depending on my income or something like that, of course, I wouldn't have been able to take that risk if other people were depending on me or if I had, you know, other um, concerns there. So it's all it's all relative. So do you have kind of like a thinking framework for this opportunity cost you're describing? Because it's, you know, not for everyone to just quit their job. And like you called out very astutely that there is a couple of risks, you know, if you have somebody that's depending on you, you have a mortgage to pay for. Is there anything else that goes into assessing, should I do X or Y in terms of job or career? That's a good question. I'd say certainly um, early on, and again, I'm not to not to talk about other people's risks and I'm not in their shoes, but certainly if you're female, there's all sorts of issues around opportunity cost and the expectations of women in the industry. And again, I'm not the person to be like the advocate for that, but there's that. And I would say that the opportunity cost of, if you think that you'd be happy, I guess it's a question of what you want to do with your, what you want to do with your life. Are you happy? hypothetically, being at a Google for the rest of your life. And there are plenty of people that started Google, you know, ten, started working at Google 10 years ago after they'd roll, ridden the roller coaster as a company to the point where they're stable, S&P level, you know, one of the biggest tech companies in the world. And there are certain people that would love to work at a Google just focusing on one specific aspect of, you know, the build system for Android, Right. And they love build systems and they would love to work at a Google to the day they retire. And if that's your path, then you should definitely consider the steps that would take you there to the point of like whether or not you should go to university or not. Because a lot of these tech companies honestly are biased toward university backgrounds. Uh, they're biased in their hiring practices. And if anything, you know, you could argue getting through interviews at those companies are very different than if you want to get a job at a startup. 
um, and you want to roll the lottery ticket there. Um, if your dream is to start your own company, I guess that a lot of these startups, uh, they do end up hiring from Googlers when they're at a certain stage where they need to scale. But the skill sets of being early stage, uh, uh, you know, a Twitter or, or Pinterest or whatever, those skill sets are night and day different than the responsibility that you need if you're um, at a large Google like that. So I guess the question is like, what skill sets you're hoping to develop, uh, or even should you spend your time building a portfolio? If you if you end up getting a job at a cushy job at Google, do you want to build up your portfolio that you can show one of these startups? Be like, just so you know, be like I can roll the punches. I can do X, Y, Z um, because uh, I guess we're going off on a tangent, but like the cliche of uh, hiring ex-Googlers at a startup is like, you'll interview them and be like, how would you do X, Y, Z if you had to? And some Googlers would be like, oh, I will you, we'd use a, a BigQuery or we use internal tool that was developed at Google. And then you'll say, well, we don't have that. And then their reaction will be, you don't have that? And you're like, you know, <laughs> you don't want to tell them, yeah, we need to build that kind of thing bespoke to our needs. So you just end up, and there's nothing wrong with it again, again, um, as long as you're going in with the right expectation, right? Um, so I guess that, yeah. And it's, I say that again, not ever having a firm direction in my life of like, I wanted to work at a startup. And, and even after I did the startup for someone else is like, maybe this isn't what I want to do with my life. It's very much <laughs> improvisational from you know, move to move. It's like a, it's like a hill climbing algorithm where it's like, okay, now what's the next point where I want to uh, go to next, right? It's an interesting yeah. point that you called out because I, it reminded me of just how different the tools are between different companies. When you work at Microsoft or Google, you start getting used to specific tooling and then you go to Amazon and they have nothing like that. And you realize just how specialized your skills were to the team and the company that you worked in instead of having the kind of more universal applicability, if you will. And I mean, granted, if you know how to write a SQL query, moving to Splunk or something else is just like, yeah, it's gonna, there's gonna be a learning curve, but whatever, you, you can pick it up. But the tooling itself is so different. I mean, that's really the, the divide, I think, or it's an interesting conversation is how much of programming is vocational where you're using existing tools how much do you really need the underlying theory to it? You, know, you still, even if you're using Google level tools, I'd hope like BigQuery, you're still in your head thinking, what is this abstraction doing underneath? Uh, versus oh, at some companies like, let me put it this way, the people, a lot of companies, they develop products through A-B testing. Like they think I want to change this to a different shade of blue and see how it affects the numbers. Do we get more clicks? For something like that, very often it's very much paint in the lines or color in the lines kind of coding. We're using external tools. You're using a UI framework someone else built. And you're more of a analyst, I guess. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but it's less, you know, thinking about, uh, okay, how do cache lines on the CPU work? Okay, how are we going to uh, batch requests here? Uh, which is a very different, uh, much more mathematical approach Again, being an analyst, you're still using math. So, but hopefully you get what I'm saying where it's like, you're using existing skills and uh, different than like, you know, arguably, you know, do you really need a CS education to be doing a lot of the stuff that uh, is done in these big tech companies? <laughs> Whether they right. still expect you to have one is a different conversation. Right, no, that totally makes sense. And because it's somebody likes to build the Lego blocks and somebody likes to make the Legos. No, nothing inherently wrong with any, any of the path. But speaking of skill sets, 
So you were one of the first iOS developers at Twitter. Not only did you have to skill up yourself and build certain parts of the, the, the systems, but you also had to scale a team that does this with you. So you were a tech lead. How was that different, I guess, from the challenges of an individual contributor they, you know, while you were at Twitter? Um, and it's interesting to sort of to define the difference. People don't know it where typically there's like an engineering manager, which manages the project and people and has one-on-ones. And then a tech lead tends to be less uh, managerial, more like architecture. I guess enterprise architects have given architect a bad name, but sort of like steering the ship and making sure that like, okay, we're doing code reviews. Uh, what's the situation on having automated tests in our app and instilling best practices and helping scale that way, things like that. And so I was, I was the second iOS engineer at Twitter because we had acquired a Tweety uh, at the time, which is also super weird doing due diligence and interviewing someone you look up to, which clearly, you know, what, what can I interviewing someone who clearly knows more than you in a skill set. Uh, so I had been doing Cocoa development since 2006-ish. I started dabbling in it um, on Mac OS. And so I'd done iPhone development a few years before, but nothing compared to what uh, was being done with Tweety when we acquired the company. So in a way, it also forced me to up my skill set, you know, turn it up to 11 and really like hit the books and really know it inside and out. So it really pushed me. Uh, so I would not say I came in there being some kind of brilliant, you know, expert. Uh, so that was nice on my end, but yeah. So what, to what you're saying there, like, uh, you do need, it is about, uh, you know, setting best practices and also hiring. I think that's the main thing. And the best thing I heard about when I was, uh, uh, from, uh, I think Evan Williams used this analogy is that early companies are like cement where when the cement is still wet, it's super easy to change it and sculpt it. But then once it settles, it, <laughs> it's going to be difficult. And I would say that the smartest thing or the luckiest thing that happened was staffing. Unlike a lot of the company, we were very, uh, we did a lot of diligence in staffing and picking the people with the right type of outlook and, and native app development in best practices. And we focused on a little slower hiring and making sure we had the, we, we built a, a great culture around expectations around apps, you know, for example, um, and by virtue perhaps having ex Apple people to fill out the ranks. If you drop below 60 frames a second in an animation, that was not acceptable. It wasn't the end of the world, but it's like, let's, let's get that fixed. We're just going to hold ourselves to that level. At the end of the day, look, you need to ship, you need to ship. But it's like, yeah, we just don't find that cool. Right, <laughs> kind of like cooking fish in the in the microwave at a company. Like, eh, that's that's not cool. So we were lucky in that we built out uh, that culture there. But um, if you aren't careful, and this is what happened later, as uh, so we were lucky that when I started, uh, mobile still wasn't a big thing in the industry. It wasn't until 2011 that I think a lot of the companies woke up four years after the iPhone. Like, oh, everything should be mobile. And I, I don't know if it's just crazy now, 10 years later, to think back to that time. But companies like Facebook were just like, okay, it's just another platform. Let's reskin our mobile website, wrap it in a shell app, and call it a day. It's funny, we internally had debates uh, with external teams of like, well, why don't we just do that? You know, we'll be able to ship so much faster. And fortunately, because we had enough momentum to be like, that's just not the way you do it. Uh, we were able to hold out long enough until 2011 when Facebook was like, and as Zuck even said, 
yeah, HTML5 was the biggest technical decision ever since mobile came out. It was a huge mistake that they rewrote the app. So, you know, that's just an example of where it's an unpopular position and you need to, to your point around advocacy and being able to articulate, you need to navigate the politics in a company where uh, as much as tech pretends to be analytical, a lot of it is ultimately people read an article or they fall for blog posts and they hear, oh, shell apps, write once, run everywhere, right? And you need to be able to internally advocate and push people. <laughs> and so like one backdoor way of, uh, of fighting this was I wrote a blog post for my own blog, which basically articulated like why shell apps don't work. And it was also my silent way of like telling people within the company, like, so here's why I'm not having this debate anymore. And then later I had a, a good friend who works at Google said, told me like, yeah, that, that post you made went around the rounds internally and up the chain. <laughs> like, yep. Okay, cool. So it's like almost like a, I don't know, a false flag <laughs> battle <laughs> there. So yeah, a lot of it, you know, uh, is political. Um, it helps also with those arguments to have um, data. And so you can say something, you can say that it sucks to have dropped frames. It's easier to have a technical measurement like, uh, okay, having slower connections and loading spinners, can you correlate that with fewer signups? Can you correlate it with less time spent in the app? Which is difficult and annoying in a large company that it comes down to that as opposed to common sense. Like loading spinners are annoying. Why is this in our app? But then you have to make an, uh, an argument, okay, well, we can do it with method X, it'll take longer. Why should we delay launching feature Y in order to make sure that we cut the load time down? Stuff like that. And that's just, you know, that's the challenge when you're working at a big company, right? Not that I ever really mastered that, but it's just a skill set if that's what you, if you want to excel at a large company like that, learn, uh, learn skills like that. You're, you're very accurately describing the situation of where it's somebody's baby, right? So you're calling somebody's baby ugly, where somebody's like, well, I was the PM for this feature that was a spinner, and now you're telling me I need to get rid of it? Like, what? No. And I, I know the spinner here is, can be a silly example, but the idea is like, well, this is mine, right? Are you taking it away? And there's a lot of that. And on the flip side, nothing that you work on in a large company is yours. You give up. Right. Right. Uh, and I think that everyone understood that um, uh, when Tweety was acquired is that, you know, it's obviously there was an uh, element of, you know, talent and input that came with the, with the team. <laughs> it was one person. Um, but at a certain point, if you're going to work at a large company, you know, you might own a feature, but you can't own the product. And the sooner you can become comfortable with that, and the correlation is if people are trashing your product publicly, and uh, certainly when I was a large company, you do unpopular things that are outside of your control, you cannot take that personally. And so even when I trash larger companies, which I consider a noble target, I think it's totally fine to trash Facebook as a company for some of its practices. I try not to like, you know, understand that people necessarily made those decisions. Usually, you know, growth hackers make terrible decisions. They're unethical. But, you know, the individual engineer who built the spinner, like, I feel bad for them. Like, it's a beautiful spinner. It's not your decision. The spinner has to be there. <laughs> but, um, and if you're going to join one of these large companies, you better get a thick skin and like, you know, don't go, uh, don't go out there and be a stand for a $10 billion company and like acting like, you know, what they're doing is like you're changing the world. Unless you're literally curing cancer, you're just a for-profit company. <laughs> like roll with the punches, 
Uh, and uh, don't don't get too personally attached to something. Um, I mean, if you make a video game that's art, yeah, I mean, totally, you know, you're making art. But if you're just like, you're not, most companies aren't changing the world, man. <laughs> like, get over yourself. We're changing the world. We just added a flag reaction to your messages. So, <laughs> but so you've done Twitter. You've done a lot of work there. You then briefly worked at Periscope, which is the streaming service. Was that your first kind of foray into, I want to say, graphics and kind of image processing? Because now you're working on camera apps and Periscope arguably is one of those camera apps, right? Yeah. So in 20, I'm going to say 15, whenever I tweeted it, it was like, I want to, and this is one of those things where I was returning back to what did I enjoy doing on a technical level uh, in college? And uh, what did I, what, what, now that I have enough of like uh, a safety net and I'm at a point in my career where I can easily, if it fails, I could find another job, you know, what would I really love to work on and maybe graphics. And so I decided like, I'm going to learn shaders this year and lower level programming there. Cause it's like, also, at a certain point when you've done front-end development for a long time, you feel like you're you're solving the same puzzle over and over again, right? And so a lot of people, I think that it's this instinct where you get bored. That's why people go and they learn the hot new framework, and they just think that by swapping out tools, they're learning something new. And if you're ever in that rut, find something totally different than what you're doing. If you're a front-end developer, look into machine learning or back-end or something like that and figure ways of like, when people say generalist, like that's an actual generalist when you have deep knowledge of each particular, you know, skill set. I wanted to do more graphics programming and I started taking the books and like messing around with it. And um, this is true of all jobs. Uh, the way you usually get it when you reach a certain point in, a, in your career is some friends like, yeah, do you want to work here? <laughs> or you'll ping someone at a large company like, hey, you got any openings? And like, it's, it's, you can still make your way through the front door, but uh, honestly, and this is again, an example of you know inequality is that once you're in, it's easier to get a job doing something else that you like. And so I, you know, someone else pinging like, yeah, you're doing graphics programming. Um, a friend who, and this is after, uh, to be clear, this is after Twitter had acquired Periscope. It had just acquired it relatively recently. And they're like, yeah, we have some features we wanted to build, but like our core team, like they are focused on like integration with the main service and X Y Z with signups. And so we have like some ideas on the edges here of like, we'd love to do, but we can't justify like, would you like to join and sort of prototype and possibly shift these like experimental features? I'm like, yeah, that sounds cool. Um, and so like uh, I joined just to do contracting. And so I do it on and off for about six months um, there. And so like the, the big feature I shipped initially was the ability to draw on um, streams. So you could actually like draw a circle around something like, hey, check out this sun or this uh, check out this car over here. And then a few seconds later, the drawing would dissolve. And then afterwards, uh, so after that shipped toward the end, it's like um, they realized it would make sense to invest more in their, uh, a bespoke rendering engine for their videos. So they could do stuff like that easier. So I helped them um, refactor and rebuild some of their video engine, which definitely did like, this was all OpenGL, but it did later help me out uh, when it was time to build Halide. Like, okay, I've this is not my first project, and I it ended up I ended up building it in metal. But it was it's nice to learn something, and other people are paying you to. <laughs> so it wasn't like I when they hired me or contracted me. It wasn't like I was just cracking open a book the first day. But it gave me, um, you know. And this is my advice for people who want to learn something new: is always having a project will get you to your goal faster than opening a book and just trying to memorize. That has never worked for me. 
So it was, uh, it was, you know, an amazing experience to get that opportunity. And at the end, the only reason I stopped was like, again, I was, I'd even told them like, you know, I love everything you've done for me and it's cool here, but I really want to finish this camera app I've been working on. And I, I, I it's been nagging me for a while and I just have to know what it's like. And I just got to spend all my time dragging across the finish line. And at the time it was also illogical because, you know, contracting can be again, just financially great money. And uh, it was like, you know what, I'd rather do this thing. And at the time, iPhone apps, especially camera apps, like there's no way you're going to make any money of that. They didn't tell me that, but that's just in general, the industry perception. So it just didn't make sense to do it. But it's like, I just, it's going to nag me the rest of my life. If I don't try once building an app on my own, because I always worked on other people's products and at best, you know, they would take my input, which is good. I learned about some product development on that end, but I never was a hundred percent accountable for every aspect of what goes into the app, right? And so that's why uh, I had to sort of finish my own thing. So it seems like you have a tendency to go for the hard technical challenges. And actually reading your blog, one of the things that you mentioned is that when you interview folks, one of the things that you like to ask is, what's their most difficult technical problem that they solve? Why is that question important? Because again, for a lot of technical interviews, they ask you to, you know, here is a, you know, built me a link list, or how do you, you know, work with a binary search tree? And in your case, you're focusing on what's your difficult problem? Why is that important? For starters, I probably would never pass most uh, algorithmic questions around like invert a binary or red black tree, you know, one, because at a certain point, like you get out of school for so long, you're not going to remember that. I don't do that stuff day to day. And I wouldn't say I was great at it in school. And so I don't think any of that reflects most of the day-to-day stuff that's going to make you successful as an engineer. I mean, certainly, I guess knowing that might suggest that you have the right engineering skill set. But I would say that uh, having the right outlook and an engineer's outlook on tackling a problem, the right, I would say attitude, but just sort of the certain curiosity around getting to the bottom of a problem versus as much as I copy and paste on Stack Overflow, there is a certain number of people who you know, they haven't yet understood like the fundamental stuff and the best they can do is copy and paste. They haven't yet made that mental connection, right? So that's kind of what you want to filter for. And even then, if you're hiring a junior engineer, someone who isn't that great at, at certain things, but they show that they're willing to learn, right? So one, you need to calibrate your interviews based on what the role is you're filling, obviously. Being able to uh, ask an open-ended question like that is allows me to know if it's someone junior and the most they've done is university or a particular problem school, that gives me an idea of where they're at. Um, if you're super senior and they're ju- and you just talk about, <laughs> yeah, provisioning an Xcode makes no sense. Like, yeah, it doesn't. But I would hope that as an iOS developer, you have a story about an awful memory leak or, you know, some kind of you know crazy bug around timing with network calls or something like that or who knows maybe not you know i i loved having interviews and learned something from the interviewee <laughs> like uh, uh i had this great ex uh, person who worked um, for a, a, a cable company and it was about the the set top boxes communicating back to the home and like a weird timing with mpeg decompression what's great is learning from someone something i didn't know before and whenever i have an interview and someone tells me a fun story and I learn something like, yeah, I'd love to learn from that person. And so that said, there is a disadvantage. And I think someone tweeted about like, okay, does that bias yourself to people who are better at telling stories or have something rehearsed, right? 
And so you need to be aware of that. Ultimately, any kind of arbitrary quiz you give <laughs> in, a, in the course of an hour is going to be biased. So you want to balance that out with doing uh, research on if they have a portfolio, certainly looking at the portfolio. Uh, if they have a list of other companies they've worked at, downloading the apps they've worked at and asking them during the uh, interview, what did you work on on that app? And then trying to figure out if they're not lying. Unfortunately, some portion of the population, it sucks. Hopefully it's a very small portion or they will lie on an interview. So you just want to, you know, that's the extent of a technical question is to make sure you know how to do FizzBuzz, like that you're not a total, you know, fraud and, you know, and you do that. But I'd also say that, and this goes to SATs and a lot of standardized tests is that in fact, a lot of the tests you get at large tech companies are bias toward people like the SATs who have the affordance of time to just study for that test. It's good Hart's law. Any measurement is good is, until it becomes the target and then everyone's gonna game the target. And you see that in large companies around A-B tests, if you target clicks, people will instill dark patterns to get that button clicked more. And so if you test for algorithms at a certain point is like, if you test someone with how many pushups you can do in an interview, yes, the type of person who will then spend a month learning to do a hundred pushups will probably perform better at your company just because they are so eager to work at their com at your company that they'll try to do a hundred pushups. And then, you know, obviously you're biased against people who have <laughs> physical disabilities or, or don't have uh, a much of a propensity for arbitrary BS, right? A lot of our industry is just cargo culting these stupid tests. And if you're at a Google, you know, where you have a thousand people vying for one position and you can skim the top 1% of the 1%, you can come up with a horrible interview process. Uh, Google has a, an unrelated post. Uh, they were talking about the unreasonable efficacy of big data. And it basically talks about with machine learning algorithms, you don't need the best algorithm to have the best machine learning results. If you have literally billions of images in your corpus to train a, 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 an algorithm, you'll get superior results to a company with a superior algorithm, but they only have 10,000 photos to work with, right? It's the exact same with their hiring practices. Like if you're in a small company and you're trying to be a Google, I think you're setting yourself up for failure just because you're not gonna be a Google. Differences of scale. Yeah. <laughs> so, so not to make this a software engineering interview, but what is the hardest problem that you've solved in your experience, your engineering career? Unfortunately, as a business owner, I now have to deal with the idea of trade secrets. So I can't go into too much detail, <laughs> but I'll say like a product feature. Uh, last year with uh, Halide Mark II, um, one of the features we wanted to do was Instant Raw, which would automatically develop your raw photos for you to a degree where it would be like, it would get you 80% of the way there. Because a complaint from users um, in V1, especially if you're new to raw, is that the photos, like they look nothing like what you actually want when you go into an editor. That, because it was so open-ended with, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's an ill-constrained problem. What is a good photo to begin with? And so I had to explore a bunch of different approaches that were like throwing darts in the dark. <laughs> like, does this give better results? I don't know. And so much of it is you go out and you shoot and you see, is it better? And we ultimately settled on a variant of some classical approaches in, in computer vision slash image processing, combined with some light touches from stuff I learned from HDR and detail recovery there and some secret sauce uh, there. So it was just, it was nice. It, it's terrifying to have something where some percentage of your results are going to suck, no matter how much, you, uh, no matter how hard you try. And so, uh, yeah, so it was a scary, but eventually it came together 
remarkably by a miracle, uh, <laughs> surprisingly late into the process. So yeah, image processing and uh, to that, building off that, I would say that with every release, there's something that's always the hardest thing I've ever tackled. And if you aren't perpetually finding yourself tackling the hardest thing in your career, maybe you'll enjoy yourself doing other things. But if you want to be, if you want to be hardcore engineering, it's a good thing to always have something new. They're like, I have no idea how I'm going to do this. I think I'm going to fail. And then the dopamine kick of it coming together and the release coming together. Like if you can get that harmony, then you, you're going to be very happy in your career as an engineer. Now, of highly visible tech problems, you've also been a tech consultant for HBO Silicon Valley. Tell me more how you landed that gig and what was it like? Because at that point, I guess your decisions are visible to millions of people around the world. Yeah, um, between uh, Twitter and Periscope and then um, starting Lux, uh, I, I would say almost like a gap year. <laughs> you know, I was closer to two years where I was doing more consulting uh, while I was figuring out what I wanted to do next. Um, during that time, I did some work helping out CodePath, which they do workshops for existing engineers who are trying to transition from web to mobile. It was never like a general programming class. It was for people who were mostly senior. But I did like a year um, uh, helping. Uh, I ran courses, workshops in person for a lot of senior engineers. And that was cool. And then a friend of mine, um, again, who worked in uh, Silicon Valley uh, uh, as a technical, technical consultant, was like, oh, well, they uh, have a need for something a little larger. Do you want to do this? And I'm like, yeah, that'd be cool. And so that became like, it was uh, originally talking about doing it for like an episode and it sort of sprawled out to a whole season. And part of it was answering questions. I got to sit in in the writer's room. Um, my greatest accomplishment was like, I told a joke there just off the cuff and Mike Judge laughed and like, yes, bucket list. And so, you know, there's that, but uh, the big task there was building um, an internal, a chat app uh, around the second season. They had this app called Bro, which was like, yo, but you could just send a, a fist bump and so I built a functioning app that the cast and crew used where they would not just hit, you know, fist bump. You could actually chat with each other and send almost like an emoji animations. And the original plan was that it would be released to the public. Uh, but then you have to go through because it was with HBO, you have to get sign off there. And I think then we ran the numbers and like, okay, if this takes off, what would it cost? And then, and this was before 2016. And like, I think also people probably got wind of how do you handle user moderation? So in retrospect, you know, I guess is there an alternate timeline where it was publicly released and then it was used by Russian bots to, <laughs> to interfere with the election? Thankfully, that never happened. So the fact it was never released is perhaps a blessing, but it's fully functional. I mean, I think um, uh, Kumail Nanjiani uh, tweeted about like, yeah, there was supposed to be a real bro app, but I don't know what happened to that. And they're like, ugh. But I built the back end for that. And it was, um, I think everyone learned a bunch from it. And I had a bunch of fun and I got to, I got a cameo out of it. Um, so again, it's one of those kind of funny, just like you stumble into it uh, in the course of your life. And like, how did that happen? I still don't know. And weird adventures like that. So the app was actually functional. It wasn't just, you know, somebody Photoshop a bunch of PNGs and it dropped on a phone. And it's like, oh yeah, this is the app. No, there's test flights. There's at least a hundred people using it. <laughs> In the test flight for uh, our company, there's still the bro to bro app saying pending developer release. The back end is dead. We built it on parse. So even if I one day hit the release button, I don't think I've ever like gotten the the gumption to hit the delete or cancel. Like it still sits there. But yeah, it's fully functional. Um, 
but uh, maybe someday I'll, I'll set it as like on my, a death kill switch when I die, I'll automate <laughs> a request to release public. Although again, you can't sign up for an account, man. Um, yeah. But. It's going to be like one of those flappy bird scenarios where your phone is going to be the only phone with that unique app on it. You can sell it for like 10 grand just because it's the <laughs> only phone that has it. But so you've done Twitter, Periscope, you've been in Silicon Valley as a technical consultant, and then you decided to start Lux. Tell me more about what led you to that decision, because you, you called out the fact that, you know, you wanted to finish this photo app that you were working on. But what went into the decision of saying, you know what, I'll quit my job and I'll just start building something new from scratch? Yeah. And I'd say that uh, after Twitter and during that two year period where I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do, and this is a technique that writers will do is uh, they'll keep a notepad full of their ideas for stories or sketches or, you know, and so I had a notes file full of like apps I might want to build. The goal was in addition to finally like saying, I tried it, it failed. I, I should work for other people. You know, you got to do it. It would be a calling card for if I want to do graphics programming. And I kept coming back to this idea of a camera app. It just kept coming back. And um, I, I got to a point where I had a list of the features that I would want in a camera app. And I was getting into photography at the time. I've got you know, all the gear of a digital SLR. And it's like, okay, when I download a third-party app uh, for camera app, one, camera systems on the iPhone were becoming more popular. Two, I, I, there was a certain level of business level, like ultimately it's about luck, period, end of story. <laughs> You're lucky. There's certain strategic decisions you can make to improve your probability. Who knows if it improves at 5% or 50%, but looking at a camera app and just the timing of the market felt like this had the best chance of, getting some popularity. And so I built the technical proof of concept of these are the features that I really want in the camera app. And this is what's missing out there. And I reached out to someone, uh, you know, I got the technical proof of concept done. And then I was like, okay, cool. Now I just got to spend 20 years becoming a world-class designer. Uh, <laughs> instead, I was like, okay, why don't I team up with now a designer who will make something amazing and beautiful and, you know, fits my, someone who, fit, who sees eye to eye on taste and what they want out of an app. And so I'm, I partnered with Sebastian, who is also living in San Francisco. There was a coffee shop halfway in between us, and we met and like talked about it. And then it took a year because we were still doing consulting and freelancing and uh, projects in between. But it took a year between that first coffee shop meeting and us ultimately shipping uh, Halide One. And, uh, and then it unexpectedly gained a lot of popularity, and we kept iterating on the product. And then it took about two years probably between that and when it became clear of like we really need to do this full time and i i was still doing another experiment with a good friend um like do i want to do a venture-backed startup at the time and we were still toying around with ideas there and ultimately you get that fork in the road of like do you want to do the vc-backed approach which has very different expectations and you can tackle much larger problems or do you just be like you know, honestly, and again, uh, I'm, I'm still on good terms, I think, with all the folks on that different life path. But it's like, you know what, I just want to do this thing. Um, I think this is really calling to me. And yeah, it's just like, again, I, I would say that having reached that point in my career where if it fails, what's the worst that could happen? Uh, if you're considering doing your own, if you want to do what I do, uh, one, I'll try to talk you out of it. But two, you know, don't expect that you're going to be lucky with the first go. And I would say that I was incredibly lucky. And I, I don't think that the, I think it, there's just as much chance it could have totally failed. And, you know, there you go. So did you have a backup plan, right? Like jumping into something new that you have not done before. And it's an app that, you know, you 
don't know if it's going to hit what you know silicon valley speak the product market fit did you have kind of a, a plan of saying you know what if this doesn't work out i can always fall back on something else so there is a there's a saying that if you have a backup plan then <laughs> don't have a backup plan because eventually you'll hit the backup plan right and that's at least true of actors and a lot of the the arts right is that a lot of people they they their careers don't take off in acting and so they they go and pursue uh, teaching uh, acting at university not to diminish that role but uh, a lot of people I've known who have been successful in acting they just hold out and do it for in LA there's a saying of a ten year overnight success some people end up they move to LA and they just end up getting lucky in, within a year some people ten years in they end up becoming I'm not going to name drop, <laughs> but no, they become very successful. And I saw that actually with a bunch of my friends that, at the time, not that I was in a, a circle of influencers, but it's just like some people, they just, they get lucky. And my backup plan was, uh, this is a calling card, but I want something that I will be so incredibly proud of that even if it fails, I can say I did this and I'm really proud of it. So that's the backup plan. And to that degree, though, I would caution people saying that don't view it as a meritocracy. Meritocracy, see, meritocracy is a joke. Uh, it doesn't exist. And I think a lot of people approach this sort of stuff as I will make the best possible app. But the fit isn't there. The demographic isn't there. And they can make the best possible app. And like a great artist, someday when they're dead, maybe someone will discover it. And it's tragic. Or they'll release an incredible app, but it's five years too early. Right? Could you have released Uber in 2006 or one of these ride-sharing apps before the iPhone was crit hit critical mass? Could you have released Uber in 2007, the first year of the iPhone, when there weren't enough iPhones out there? Right? You know, I I, I had the backup plan of knowing that even if it failed, I could still present it as a calling card and get a job doing more Periscope or or getting a job at another large company there. So, yeah, the backup plan was the app, but I would say that I wasn't that I was ignorant enough to think, yeah, this could, this could go either way. Okay. Because if you start doing the odds of the probability of failure, you know, I think there's a reason why so many successful entrepreneurs are kind of insane because they just, they don't know the probability of it failing. They have every, it's most likely your startup's going to fail, period. It's just, it's just the statistics go out there, go to a, one of these VCs and uh, uh, Y Combinator has a list of companies. And if you run the numbers, like, you're totally going to fail as an entrepreneur at YC. You're going to get Aqua hired. And then uh, congratulations if you win the lottery ticket, you become an Airbnb. But you're totally going to fail. I would put money, if there were such thing as like a stock market for early stage companies, I would get rich bet shorting all of these early stage companies, right? I feel like that's something that's under underestimated by a lot of folks, that the probability of failure is much higher than the probability of success. Because... A lot of folks have that, you know, you, you read a lot of successful stories about folks that, you know, I quit my job and I became, you know, this uh, Instagram influencer or something. And you're like, whoa, cool. Like somebody did it. I must be able to do the same thing. But like, you don't know their situation. You don't know what exactly, what kind of funding they have. What It's also the survivor bias. Yeah. If you have, what is the current batch of YC, every batch now, a thousand companies or something insane. Yeah. So, and in 2007, it was like a tiny batch and much more handpicked. And the idea behind venture capital in general, before you do a startup, do research on just how the economics of it work, where the idea behind venture capital is the way that you get to a company that returns a hundred or a thousand X return is you 
put a little money into comp into a thousand or ten thousand companies, and ninety nine point nine percent of them are going to fail. That's the idea behind venture capital. If you had something stable that was going to work most of the time, people would go out and get small business loans, right? And people just don't understand the idea of survivor bias. And uh, also a lot of these people who they look like they're successful. And then you, if you back channels, you find out that, well, that was actually aqua hired because so-and-so actually went to Stanford with a business development of that large company and sort of set up a cushy landing for them. So a lot of what you read until you're in the Valley long enough that you can read between the lines. If you're just reading TechCrunch and you aren't aware of what actually is going on behind the scenes, you get this conception of like, oh yeah, everyone gets bought and like, yeah, but they basically got bought and they could have just gone, they could have applied to Google and they would have uh, uh, avoided all these ulcers they would have gotten from four years of running their own company, right? So don't hold yourself to what you read in tech press. So what's the biggest contrast for you as an engineer working at a smaller studio compared to when you worked at Twitter or Periscope? You have to get things done. <laughs> and I'd say, uh, by the way, Periscope was amazing as far as productivity when I was working with them because they were still very much held as a, they were isolated and able to operate as a small company when I was interacting with them. So I have no complaints about that company, but compared to even Twitter, like all these companies, they get to a large scale and by virtue of being at that scale, you cannot operate as a startup. As much as I make fun of Facebook for move fast and break things, at a startup, you are able to move very fast because there are few consequences. And trying to operate fast at, at a large scale like Facebook results in horrible, horrible consequences for society. Or eventually you make a terrible product decision. And, um, and I saw that as Twitter was growing where it just didn't have the checks and balances in places for rolling stuff out. I guess like the fail whale, like, right. You know, you reach a certain point where you can't just roll out seven deploys per day. You need checks and balances to slow you down. You need a certain immunity to quick uh, changes like that. And that's part of the consequences of working in a large company. On the flip side, a lot of these companies like look at Amazon, no one uses Amazon for their apps. Their apps suck. Like they have so many horrible bugs. Uh, they're so slow to load. You ask someone why they use Amazon, it's because you can buy something and it'll arrive at your doorstop in two days. They have an operational network, which is their moat. And they could release like a horrible app that like forces you to click through a bunch of banners to do anything and they would still get away with it. And so they have that, they have flywheels where when you're a large enough company, like look at BlackBerry, when the iPhone came out, BlackBerry was flying high for a few years because they had so many, so much inertia. But then eventually when something is not going well, it all kind of falls apart all at once, right? Where BlackBerry was like, when it collapsed, it was like near instantaneous. And, uh, and so if you're a large company, you don't get the feedback loop of when you make poor product decisions or you go down a dark path. It can be years before you see the consequences, which then leads into all sorts of weird dynamics as far as product, where you're incentivized as a product manager, you can get away with doing things that will move metrics short term and then harm the company long term. And you have to deal with all that. Some companies are better at that than others. And to a degree, like an Apple is far from perfect, but they've managed to stay somewhat lean to a fault almost as far as small teams 
Uh, they don't do the crazy A-B testing that you'll see at large companies uh, versus a company that has 200 iOS developers working on a single app, right? So it's not true throughout the industry, um, but there's there's no perfect way to scale a company, you know, just like uh, any kind of large organism. You know, if you're a small company or my dog can run much faster than I can, <laughs> right? But, uh, you know, or, 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 you know, you can get to a larger, or birds, they have a hollow bone structures so they can fly, right? In a large company, you just need to have these systems in place that you can't operate like the same way when you're lean. So now that you're in this lean state, you have to balance engineering and the business side of things. How do you find that balance? Because, you know, sometimes it feels terrifying because you want to say that, yeah, I'll start my own company and I'll just do the coding. I'll code day and night and I'll be building this great product. But then you forget about all these logistics and tactical items that you need to tackle for your product to be successful. What's that balance like for you? I think that it's difficult for me because I think we've reached a certain point in the company where we were able to, and this was probably 2019, where we could make it all lifestyle at. And so you can be a one-person company if you are very smart about the niche you carve out. You can just keep doing what you're doing likely for quite a while. I guess there's a certain risk with a lot of lifestyle apps where you can sustain yourself at at least a salary of like working a large tech company, I guess, or even better. Uh, and you can just keep doing what you're doing. But then for me and Sebastian, I think we both saw it eye is that we want to be able to tackle more things. And then you start hitting a wall as far as hours in the day. Uh, and I think it was when we reached our second app is like, there's just like, we want to maintain our first app. And so to do our second app, we didn't have as much resources to invest in the first app. So part of it is like, you then need to learn how to delegate if you're going to scale, right? And it goes back to the mythical man month and all that. And on top of the, just the ability to delegate is that as far as me and my career, I am not going to be one of those pretentious people like that talks about a 10X engineer because that's BS. We'll say this, let's say that you're a senior engineer, you've been doing it for over a decade. You're going to be more productive than if you hire someone, say, who's two years out of, of, of school, right? It's just a fact. You know, we'll say you're 20% more productive, right? So you know that you can get something done yourself if you just go out there and do it, and especially if you know the code base inside and out. And so you need to become more mature and understand how you delegate things and how do you give up a little of the product. And again, like I started doing this because I wanted 100% control of the product. And how do you steer the ship as opposed to being like knee deep in it. And that's unfair to the people you're hiring to micromanage them. Right. And I hope that I haven't micromanaged anyone yet. And, uh, you know, I, I, we, our, our first hire was someone who is amazing uh, and she's great at what she does. And so I'm fortunate there. And, and I think it'll be a little more interesting when we reach the point where we want to hire someone junior, because then you have to walk the line of, you need to get stuff done, but you also are just doing a disservice to a junior person if you aren't mentoring them. So it's a lot of non-product stuff. And I think that if you think that being a business owner means that you can just focus on the product, you are, you're going to be super miserable. <laughs> like you now have to deal with, we have someone part-time who helps out in Arizona. Um, uh, he's in uh, university right now and he's helping edit some of our video tutorials that complement our app. And now I'm dealing with the state of Arizona to get him officially as a part-time employee. You have to register with the state of Arizona. You have to file for an unemployment identifier, but that's a different entity than the way, main one you, you have to file with because you're taking on an employee. So now you can shoot off emails between these two separate entities. And it's, it's all of these little things that you have to deal with 
running a business. So if you aren't comfortable with that and you dream of just writing code, maybe a big company is for you. Maybe if you love working on the build system for Android, go take a job at Google and they will give you, you know, straight rails that you follow along where you can ship code, right? Yeah, there's a lot of a, a lot of different things that you don't think about as a product owner, as an engineer, when you're starting your own business. But something that I would do want to call out is that clearly with the apps that you're building, there is a huge focus on craft. And this is something that I don't often see in a lot of the applications that are being built by the big companies that, like you said, they do A-B tests to optimize clicks on, you know, whether it's the blue or this specific shade of blue or this other shade of blue that gives you more clicks. You're focusing on this craft and the polished experience you mentioned earlier that you know you had to work together with a designer with sebastian to make sure that you're building this great experience how did you as an engineer get to the point where you're comfortable with thinking about these details the general engineers just typically say yeah, you know what i i wrote the code it works it's stable good enough uh, i'll say that it's just the way that i like the apps i run uh, or that i use on my phone and it could just be I am an incredibly petty human being and I uh, pay attention to these details to the point where I, I should get diagnosed for obsessive compulsive disorder or something. I don't know if it's just me. Uh, and it's very much, I think it's a disservice to not know that there's something that comes to the cost of this detail, right? Where in theory, we could ship more features if we didn't obsessed over, like, why is the animation slightly wrong here? Why is it, couldn't we just make it a fade out or something? And I think that we've, one, we're lucky that we've identified a market of people who appreciate this and want this in their app. If I were building a social network, um, the most important thing with a social network is the network effects and engagement and getting people into the network and having people generate connections, stuff that I'm not interested in. And I think it would be, I guess you could get it, like if people are delighted by their app, they're more likely to return to it. I don't know, I don't know. I'm maybe I'm not the person to build a social network, but I would say that, you know, look at, look at cars. Like there's a Toyota, which is an incredible, incredible brand. And I love the process that they make in cars around the Toyota system. Who knows how much of it is just hand wavy you know, rhetoric, but it's very interesting the Toyota system and how they build systems for quality. And, um, uh, and I would say a Toyota is rock solid and that's the perception you can have a Toyota for 20 years versus, you know, you look at an Aston Martin, which the perception is that they are horrible with their electrical systems, or oh my God, if you've ever known someone who owns a Land Rover, they'll tell you that the cars are in the shop more often than they drive it, right? So, I mean, there's a certain approach there of just understanding like quality as far as like apps and crash reports, but even then we want to deliver a premium experience and that's what people are paying for. It's like, um, and so even on the higher end, like a, a Porsche, you know, there are just so many of these small details that if you talk to someone who's passionate about Porsches, like there is a, a rabid community, like certain people collect air-cooled classic Porsches and trying to create an audience of people who are as passionate about those attention to details. And I won't, again, I won't pretend that you'll just get that by building an amazing app or a, a, what you perceive as amazing app and they'll come. But we're very fortunate that once we've identified people that want that, they will appreciate it versus if we were to target an audience and they're okay. I'll say there are other camera apps out there that try to be a kitchen sink and I'm not trashing all other camera apps, but there are certain ones in their approaches, throw in everything inside the app and get as many check boxes 
uh, uh, covered in their app store description as possible. That's one approach and good luck with that. But I don't think that that's where we want to go. And I think that that's being uh, jack of all trades and master at none. So then that said, though, there are other great camera apps out there that I've played with different. You know, it'd be like Porsche being like Ferraris are cool, you know, uh, and Aston Martins are a gorgeous car. Uh, so there's there's plenty of room for different takes for camera apps, but uh, yeah. Love it. Let's say somebody is wanting to go in your footsteps and start a small studio to build apps. One thing that you would tell them, short of dissuading them, like you mentioned earlier, what would it be? Uh, are you comfortable with it failing? In all probability, it's going to fail. Make sure that you're, uh, you have a safety net. Uh, right. And that's the big secret. And also, I don't think it's a coincidence that if you look at the people who call themselves self-made billionaires, they had rich parents. So there's that. Don't don't dilute yourself uh, there and um, ask what you're going to do beyond the app, because a lot of what we do, uh, we have a very strong um, uh, we have experience with PR and marketing uh, and we made the decision to get into camera apps just looking at the market space. So a perfect example of like um, something if I were not building camera apps uh, in photography uh, and a market to get into, which would be interesting, would be fitness. Uh, I looked at fitness apps and if you looked at that, I wanted an app that would help keep track of like my different reps and like where I'm at as far as curling and and, and push-ups, right? And all the apps sucked and I would pay six bucks i paid 10 bucks for a super polished app that just worked and fitness is an area that people spend billions that's with a b billions of dollars every year on and if you talk to people in fitness they are passionate about fitness so that would be something that would be interesting to get into but if you think that you're going to build the next facebook and you're not taking on uh, uh, God knows how much in venture capital and you don't have a strategy that's like, we'll start with Harvard and get the influencers. Like don't enter a gunfight with a, with a spoon, with a spork, right? <laughs> so understand what you're capable of, what are your strengths, and then make a reasoned assessment about what is the ones that will be the statistically uh, highest chance of a successful outcome. But, you know, and if you fail, uh, would you have an amazing calling card? And, you know, I've known people who they they did the independent thing for a while and it didn't work out, but they end up, you know, they are have uh, they are incredibly happy now working at like Apple or one of these large companies. And so if you enjoy the journey, then it isn't as much of a work. But um, just recognize that it, not everyone is set up enough in life that it will work out. And I didn't do it until I was in my mid 30s. So don't get into a rush and have fun. These are fantastic insights. Ben, thank you so much for sharing them uh, with us. Where can people learn more about your work online? You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Sandowski. That's Sand of Sky. But uh, if you want to follow the company, we post a bunch uh, about the company's product development in addition to product features. It's a lux.camera is the new site that we relaunched. We're now self-hosting and we're going to be posting there a bunch. And we have links to all of our social media there. So yeah. Those two are pretty cool. Love the TLD. Ben, thank you so much for being here with us today. Thanks. Well, thanks for having me.